Welcome to the Essentials Podcast, the show that brings you thought-provoking educational content from the world of human biology and culture. I'm the host, Maddie Flint, and today's episode is going to discuss the biochemical and physiological effects of stress on our bodies. A lot of the time, we get really caught up in the world around us, and it's really easy to become very stressed, especially since our society is pushing the grind as a lifestyle, and I'm not saying that's bad, because I'm on that grind too, but... There comes a point when you should take some time for yourself and for your own health to de-stress. And that's not a sign of weakness if you need to say no to activities or plans and do what helps you to de-stress. Because being in a state of stress can have many adverse side effects if it becomes chronic. And so that's really what I'm going to be talking about in this podcast today because we talk about stress all the time. We toss that word around continuously, but we may not know what it actually means biologically But if you listen to my last episode, then you may already know this description. So stress, not to be confused with anxiety, is your body's natural response to anything that's causing you physical, emotional, or psychological strain. So it's not the strain itself, but it's the effects of the strain on you. And everybody has experienced it. And it can manifest symptomatically in various ways. Some of the most common symptoms are aches and pains or chest pain, feeling like your heart is racing, exhaustion, trouble sleeping, headaches and high blood pressure, muscle tension or jaw clenching, which is something that I do a lot, stomach or digestive problems, anxiety, irritability, and even depression. So I'm going to do some overviews of stress effects, and I'm going to go over them in an order that moves from a more superior part of the body downwards, just for the initial breakdown. So we could maybe look at this as if we were riding in Miss Frizzle's magic school bus and we're taking a field trip starting at the brain and moving down through the body. I'm hoping that that will make it a little bit more of an organized approach just because there's so much to talk about. But a main thing that I want you guys to kind of keep in mind when I'm talking about them is that all of these organ systems are communicating with each other and none of these things are happening in a step-by-step process. They could all be happening at the same time. There's a lot of interplay between hormones and neurotransmitters and all that stuff, but we're going to get to some definitions. And I'm going to talk about behavior afterwards, because that's kind of the keystone that links mental states with physical health conditions. And then afterwards, I want to bring in some content from a documentary called How to Live. It's about longevity and some of the methods that the world centenarians have lived by. It's also very important to note that There are biological sex differences that determine how the brain will respond to stress based on things like estrogen and testosterone. So if you have an X and a Y chromosome, you are going to process stress biologically different than if you have an X and X. And this is why when we're talking about biology, we need to consider these effects regarding chromosomes. With that being said, the things I'm going over will happen in both males and females, just in varying degrees. So as a precursor to the content we're going to discuss today, I want to briefly define some of the things I'm going to mention a lot, just so that we're all on the same page and it gives you the power of understanding. So starting with neurotransmitters, and I'm sure you guys have probably heard that word a lot, but the biological definition of that is that neurotransmitters are chemical messengers who bring signals from one neuron, which is very broadly speaking a brain cell, to the next target cell. And the target does not have to be another neuron, it could be a gland or a muscle. And we have more than 40 different types of neurotransmitters in our nervous system, but our big seven are acetylcholine, norepinephrine, dopamine, GABA, glutamate, serotonin, and histamine. 
and you definitely know a lot about dopamine just because everybody talks about it all the time, but I'm sure that you've definitely heard about norepinephrine and epinephrine because epinephrine is actually adrenaline and we talk about adrenaline all the time. Next we have glucocorticoids, and these are steroid hormones produced from the cortex of adrenal glands. They have a pivotal role in the glucose, protein, and fat metabolism of the body. They do affect a lot of other things too, like triggering protein degradation, suppressing a full inflammatory response that's important, or influencing behavior and sleep. So then we have cortisol. Cortisol is also a steroid hormone that's produced by your two adrenal glands, and your adrenal glands sit right on top of your kidneys. And cortisol gets synthesized from cholesterol. It has a variety of different effects on the body, and you do need proper balance of it for life, but it is known as the body's stress hormone. Then we have our amino acids. They are major players in this game. They're simple organic compounds that contain both a carboxyl group, which is just um, a side chain that is attached to a polypeptide chain that contains carbon and oxygen and hydrogen. And then it also has an amino group, which is nitrogen and hydrogen, which is another little side chain. And those different side chains, their orientation can determine what type of amino acid is going to form just because... Cellular processes are very highly organized, and if something is bent in a certain way, it can create a whole new protein. So they're very specified. Then we have our kinases. Those are really fun to study about. These are enzymes that catalyze the transfer of a phosphate group from ATP, and we all know that that's the powerhouse of the cell because that's energy, to a specified molecule. And this process is called phosphorylation just because it's transferring a phosphate and it happens in a cascade. So you don't really need to know the specifics about what a kinase has involved with it. You just need to know that it happens in a cascade. So if something sets it off, it's just going to keep setting more different things off and triggering more openings and, you know, a cascade. <laughs> and then we have the hypothalamus. This is a little structure found deep in your brain that works to maintain your body's homeostasis as hard as it can. And it works between the endocrine and the nervous systems. So that should be a good background or baseline understanding for where we are about to go next. And we're going to start, as I said, right at the top of the body with the brain. So our brains are really just extraordinary. I mean, everything in our bodies are extraordinary because everything that is functioning within us down to a molecular level. So these are things we can't even see. So of course, we're taking them for granted. These things are all so highly ordered and their job is to keep us alive. And they just, they're, it's incredible to learn about. It's like a whole new world. And you're like, oh my gosh, wow, that's just inside one layer of my skin. Oh my goodness. So the brain obviously is so complex. It's really, really cool. And it has this feature of flexibility known as structural or functional plasticity. And that allows it to make changes in response to stressful experiences or any other type of perception that it needs to adapt to. Once there becomes an imbalance due to chronic stress in the brain, a cascade of issues will arise in other parts of the body. This is because the brain is the main communicator and it's communicating with all the other organs via the nervous system and through hormones. So that's why neurotransmitters are very important in this. And due to plasticity, the brain can undergo neurochemical changes. If you have healthy methods of adaptation to stress, your brain is less likely to get stuck in a state of what we commonly know as the fight-or-flight response. If chronic stress persists, you may experience problems with cognition, decision-making, anxiety, and mood. Getting into more chemical effects, your brain will keep releasing signals that will necessitate the formation 
of really highly excited amino acids, and that gets brought on by glucocorticoids. And so they're in this high-functioning state, and that can cause nerve cell damage, which I won't go into the entire process there, but can lead to Alzheimer's disease. And this is because that excessive activation from the stress kinases, which is like that whole cascade of responses, while in an insulin-resistant state, can damage mitochondria. And that, for some reason, is like the most iconic organelle that everybody remembers from high school as the tiny powerhouse of the cell. But they get that name because they are responsible for generating the energy that the other cells need to function, which is ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So damaging that mitochondria can be really harmful. And you can also sustain changes to your long and short-term memory. And having prolonged damage to brain cells and having really overactive molecules in there can lead to your brain actually shrinking, which is something that we see happening with senescence, which is a natural chemical aging process, but we don't want to speed that up. We're going to have to keep that one in mind for later because this topic specifically will come back. So for now, we're going to move from the brain down to the neck region, and I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff for the sake of time. But now that we're around the neck area, the thing here that I want to focus on primarily is muscle tension. Your brain has frightened everybody into thinking they have to prepare for a threat or a dangerous situation, whether you actually have to or not. So in a state of chronic stress, you're always kind of just in like a really tense mood and your muscles are in a state of guardedness. So that's what feels so tense. Let's think about how it feels when your neck is tense or when your shoulders feel like they're raised up really far, almost as if your body took a screenshot right before you tense up like you're going to get jump scared with your arms tensed and flexed upward. Like how it looks when you're bracing or blocking yourself from something. The state of tension in the muscles in these regions can lead to tightness in the neck and in the jaw. Like if you're clenching your jaw a lot, your jaw muscles are working overtime to keep you braced. And you might get knots and spasms in your neck and shoulders. I know I have. My shoulders are tense right now because I have a lab practical tomorrow morning that I'm trying to not be so stressed that I forget everything for. But yeah, everybody suffers from neck pain and shoulder pain. And it can be very discomforting. And a lot of people, when you're driving, if your neck is really frozen, it, it hurts to look behind you and you always have to be checking your blind spots when you're driving. So neck pain is something that can really be a hindrance to people. And physiotherapy can be really helpful for that if that's your thing. And so is getting a supportive pillow. To consider the rest of your muscles, especially the ones around the highly movable joints, those are your synovial joints, inflammation can occur there, causing arthritis flare-ups. And now traveling down from your neck to your heart, and of course there are lots of other things going on, but to focus on the heart primarily, because this is where we see a lot of issues with chronic stress, your heart pumps militantly all day and all night to pump blood filled with oxygen and other factors all throughout your whole body. So looking into the bloodstream, you're going to find all sorts of amazing little guys in there that fight for you every day. They're your immune cells. And while they travel through the blood, imagine this is like a highway. During chronic stress, your hypothalamus, which we talked about, in your brain has released signals to your adrenal glands. Your adrenal glands are going to start releasing cortisol into the blood too. And so now on this highway, you have all your regulars, which are your immune cells, and then your platelets, red blood cells, plasma, and macrophages and all that. They are immune cells, but there's, there's lots of little things traveling back and forth through there. And now you have a bunch of cortisol that just merged in off its exit from the adrenal glands. So 
Now we're going to talk about cortisol on its own for just a little bit, but we're still thinking about the heart and the bloodstream because cortisol happens to be that major player. So cortisol is going to get released under times of stress and it makes extra glucose and fats available to you because it wants to give you extra energy since you're in a stressed out state. You're preparing for some kind of fight or something. And it does this by raising your blood sugar. This is why it's very important for diabetics to be able to get support they need so they don't get stressed out. And it's really important for everybody, but you want to be able to keep your blood sugar down thus making it hard for insulin to do its job. Again, this is why it's really important for diabetics to not be super, super stressed out all the time. If this problem goes on, it can lead to type 2 diabetes. So even if you aren't diabetic now, there are certain epigenetic factors maybe, plus really chronic stress that could lead you to type 2 diabetes. That's not the only thing. Obviously, there's a ton of different underlying health conditions that can lead you there. But in the scope of this episode, we're just talking about chronic stress. So remember how back in the brain I mentioned how there is memory impairment? High levels of cortisol are also to blame for the short-term memory loss. If you or a loved one battles in the morning, losing their keys, losing their phone or wallet, me, this is an example of high cortisol levels, possibly, related to stress. And I also want to take some time to talk about LDL cholesterol, because this comes up in a lot of conversation. A lot of people have to monitor their cholesterol levels, especially males. LDL stands for low-density lipoproteins, and this is the bad cholesterol that can raise your risk for heart disease and stroke. And high stress is known to increase cholesterol levels, and in particular, it's this kind of cholesterol. And this happens because stress encourages the body to produce more and more energy in the form of metabolic fuels, which can cause the liver to produce and secrete more of that LDL. Some people may have lasting effects of this for years down the road, and your body won't be able to clear away those lipids as it normally does. Because if you're super stressed, every everything in your body thinks you need all this energy, this extra energy. But research found that if you tend to have unhealthy ways of responding to stress through things like hostility, maybe angry outbursts, or social isolation, even self-blame, you're going to have less HDL, which is of course the good high-density kind and more LDL building up, because if you have less HDL than LDL, HDL is the thing that goes around and contributes to the breakdown of LDL in the body. So you want to make sure that you don't have so much LDL to the point where HDL is completely outnumbered and can't do its job. There's also a link between low testosterone with age and more LDL leading to heart attack, and that's because testosterone is another hormone that can help to contribute to the breakdown of LDL. But as you age, your body starts to produce a little bit less testosterone, and so you'll have more LDL circulating through your body. So this is why we ought to give our fathers a hug, because men are dealing with stress all the time, but they may not express it the same way that women would. And the reason for this is not solely the whole traditional way of thinking where men shouldn't show their emotions, but men and women truly have different ways biologically of responding to stress. So while there are cultural factors at play here, um, there are also biochemical ones. Because in women, for example, when we're stressed out, we have the same amounts of cortisol being released as men and epinephrine. So those two things, cortisol and epinephrine, are going to be rushing through the bloodstream. And then oxytocin comes into play. This is going to be released from the brain, and it's going to counter the production of cortisol and epinephrine 
promoting nurturing and relaxing emotions. And men also have all three of those different hormones, oxytocin, they're going to have cortisol, they're going to have epinephrine, those things are going to come in, but they are going to have oxytocin released in much, much smaller amounts. So men are going to tend to want to escape the situation and women may want to instead talk it out or work it out. So there are a lot of differences psychologically that stem from chemical differences such as these that are related to sex. And this whole thing just explains why it's really important to take into consideration those types of differences because they're real and they're out there and not everything is the result of a traditional societal idea. Some things are, but not everything can be attributed to that. Some things really are attributed to your Y chromosome being present in males and two X's and no Y being present in females. And men, due to the differences in their bodies and the way that they handle stress or the way that their biology works, are at higher risk of heart attack than women are. Even though, obviously, women can also get heart attacks, but men are more likely to. It's the same principle of how, as they age, are far more likely to get osteoporosis than any other type of disease like a stroke or cancer or any of that. And it's more common in women than men because estrogen has a very interesting link with these little guys called osteoclasts, which help to break your bone down in response to building up more bone because there's a little relationship between osteoclasts and osteoblasts. These are bone cells, both of them, trying to remodel your bone and make you stronger. But estrogen kind of puts a limit on osteoclasts. I'm kind of getting off topic, but I promise I'll go back. And that limiting factor is what keeps osteoclasts from going crazy and breaking down your bones. But when estrogen starts decreasing, which happens with menopause, and it happens a little bit before menopause, but it really breaks off after that and stops being produced, your osteoclasts are just going to start like running rampant. So they're breaking down your bone. So that process is happening faster than your bones being built up by osteoblasts because clasts are out of control. And that's something that women are going to struggle with more than men. So to make that more related to what I was talking about, there are very unique relationships between testosterone and other cells and then estrogen and other cells. And this is where we see a lot of differences occurring in older men and older women, or even just men and women at any other age. So we were finishing up with the LDLs before I started talking about those differences, but having really high cholesterol and plaque buildup, which is from LDLs, can put a lot of pressure on your circulatory system. Too much cortisol is really going to help us put into perspective how that plaque buildup and increased blood cholesterol, triglycerides, increased or elevated blood sugar, and high blood pressure can happen because your body's acting like it's got to prepare for a fight. So it's bringing in all this extra energy and all these extra metabolic resources that are now floating around in your body, in your bloodstream, that you don't actually need. And it's causing extra pressures to be put on all your little mechanisms. And that can really take a toll on our hearts. And now, moving down from the heart, I really don't have a lot to talk about with the lungs. They're kind of flanking the heart, so it's not necessarily below it. But... Um, any breathing changes that can occur with stress are usually just with the onset of stress and will subside on their own and are harmless. But if you're asthmatic and you're having 
something suddenly stress you out, that can lead to sudden asthma attacks. So you want to be able to teach yourself how to respond to stressors so that doesn't happen. But generally, stress responses that cause breathing changes in your lungs will, as I said, subside on their own. So there isn't really anything chronic here to talk about. So moving even farther downward, we are now at the adrenal glands. And I talked about these guys quite a few times. They're sitting right on top of your kidneys and they are so important. There's a concept called the immune adrenal crosstalk, and it's at this level where the immune and endocrine systems interact with each other. Under a lot of stress, your adrenal glands have been hard at work. They're receiving instruction from the brain to increase all of these things to get you ready to fight. And we've got to remember, this is a natural occurrence that can truly help your survival if you are actually in a threatening situation. But if these processes are going on all the time and it's becoming a problem, your adrenal glands are rapidly secreting glucocorticoids to start making sure you have energy, which is going to cause changes to your metabolism. So blood sugar goes up, like we said, but immune response is actually going to go down because your body doesn't want to have extra energy expenditure right now. So it's going to try to prioritize what it's doing with that energy, which is to make sure you have all the necessary things at easy access in your bloodstream to use in case you have to start running or whatever it is. But glucocorticoids are inhibiting your active immune cells to do that. Cortisol is plentiful in the blood during chronic stress, and so your body will slowly begin to adapt to how that feels, and the effects can be a dysregulated immune system. So if you feel yourself getting sick or you feel under the weather a lot, this isn't just your normal, you catch a cold and then you get over it. You just seem to be catching things over and over, and then you're highly fatigued. This is the result of chronic stress, and your body, mainly your immune system, is not at a level where it can function normally because it's been depleted by all of these other things that are floating around saying, hold on, we, need, we don't need you to do that right now. We have to focus on this. But there really isn't any emergency to focus on. It's just that feeling of stress that never went away. So this really does come with a trade-off. Your adrenal glands are producing all these guys to help you get more energy that's easily accessible in metabolic forms, but your immune system can no longer function highly to keep you from getting sick. And so now we're at a point where we can start talking about digestion. So naturally, you're going to start feeling hungry more often because your body is using up all of these metabolic energy resources, and in order to make more, you have to gain it. So you're going to need to be replenishing yourself since you're using up all of this stuff that's been stored. And in attempts to make sure there's still enough in your reserves to pull out in case you need more energy, cortisol does change the way that fats are stored in your body. So now focusing more on digestion, though. You know how you get a gut feeling? That is not just made up. Your digestive system and your nervous system are besties too. And they're going to be communicating with each other through neurotransmitter use and with hormones. And if you're thinking about eating, for example, your stomach will release juices before food gets there. And our gut is sometimes referred to as a second brain. But under a lot of stress, a multitude of digestive issues can occur. This is due to similar effects of glucocorticoids and other stress stimulants that are acting on other organ systems, like what we saw with the immune system and glucocorticoids helping to inhibit the response of all of these little inflammatory cells that would help you fight off colds. Your digestion is also being inhibited because your body is trying to conserve energy for use 
with the fight or flight response. It's not concerned about digestion right now. This is where that term rest and digest comes from because under times of stress, your digestion is actually inhibited. It's just stopped temporarily. But when you're relaxing, the relaxation response is going to reactivate your digestion. But the way that stress acts on digestion has to do with the brain, the central nervous system specifically, and it's going to shut down digestion by slowing contractions of those digestive muscles. So remember how we talked about the ways that the brain interacts with the rest of the body? We said that any of those other target cells from the neurons could be types of muscle cells or it could be glands. Here, everything is being slowed down because of the way our body is trying to reroute all of our energy. If the stress response happens occasionally, the body will recover as normal and then continue with normal functioning. But if the stress response is triggered too often, the body is going to have a harder time recovering. And this is going to impede the flow of digestion and can cause an upset stomach. And it can also contribute to the development of irritable bowel syndrome and or ulcers. So this is why it's so important to practice relaxation responses as often as we can. So because of all these inhibitory responses to the digestive system, there can be a lot of adverse side effects that stress can cause, like acid reflux or bloating or constipation, cramps, maybe diarrhea, excess stomach acid, and that's going to contribute to acid reflux, gas, heartburn, indigestion, inflammation, nausea, and like pain and discomfort or changes in appetite. And I'm going to go back to the changes in appetite part once I start talking about behaviors in a minute. And so all of these different things may lead to Crohn's disease, gastritis, gastroesophageal reflux disease, infections, IBS, and as I said, ulcers. Because prolonged stress can also change the composition of your natural gut microbiome too. And it does this through stress hormones and automatic alterations. So in turn, the gut bacteria are going to release metabolites and toxins and all of these other little neurohormones that can alter your eating behavior and your mood. Some bacterial species may even encourage dysregulated eating. Now, I know bacteria in the gut sounds gross, but we do have tons of good bacteria there that help us to digest things and that can affect our mood and so on. And they're supposed to be there. But certain things like the misuse of antibiotics or being really stressed out or eating different foods or whatever it is, usually a lot of the time it's medication. They can affect the composition of that microbiome made up of all those good bacteria. And so that's just what I'm talking about there. The bad bacteria is something else, but this is altering good bacteria that's supposed to be there. So now we're going to start thinking about behavior since we talked about how a lot of things can alter your mood that come from the digestive system and from your adrenal glands because all of this stuff is hormonal, we're thinking about these problems on a scale relating to now psychological behavior. And these are specifically responses to stress. To summarize all the stuff we already talked about, our brain is making new neural connections and sending different signals to other parts of the body or to itself and letting everybody know how to prepare for a possibly dangerous event. So there are a lot of imbalances. Higher cortisol levels can alter the way that the amygdala functions by activating it. And that's going to make you want to engage in all these pleasurable activities because you feel bad. So now you want to feel good again. A really common 
thing that people do when they're stressed is to binge eat or to like snack while they're doing something. Um, I know that I do it when I'm studying and I'm really nervous about something. I'm, I'm like looking for something to snack on too, even though I'm not necessarily hungry and it may be late at night. So that's one thing that happens. And then we also talked about how cortisol can alter the way that your blood insulin levels are. So cortisol is going to bring all that sugar into your blood. And in people who are non-diabetic, insulin is going to try to react to lower all of that. So if you're having low blood sugar in response to insulin trying to do its job against cortisol, you may be craving really sweet foods and or calorie-dense foods. And ultimately, these are not foods that are great for you, but your body just feels like you need them. But with the effects happening from the amygdala, that is something that can really alter your behavior because you want to start engaging in pleasurable things. And a lot of the things that people do when they're stressed, like their mechanisms that they use to cope with, are not very healthy and will only cause stress to worsen or could lead to worse outcomes. Some of these things are smoking or overeating, like what we talked about. Drinking alcohol. This one is really, really big because this is used as a means to increase dopamine and get rid of all the actual feelings of stress since alcohol is a depressant. But drinking too much can further disrupt all of those neurotransmitters, making it really hard to sleep and really hard to truly heal from chronic stress. Another one that people do a lot, like this is a really bad habit, is driving fast, but This is because your cognition's been impaired, so you're not going to be making any rational decisions that you would have normally made if your brain was in its normal functioning state. And then another thing that people may do in response to stress is to not take their medication. So I guess that's actually something that they aren't doing in response to stress just because of that forgetfulness. So everything's being rerouted. You're forgetting what you're normally supposed to be doing. Now you're not taking medications and that can lead to other things, the things that you're taking them for to be a little bit more out of control. Thinking about smoking and drinking specifically, they can do so much damage to your body. And a lot of the time it's damage that could have been prevented if smoking and drinking were not the thing that people turn to to cope with stress. They can cause so many adverse side effects like gastrointestinal problems, neurological conditions, cancer, and other health conditions. And smoking, to tie this to the other things we talked about with HDL and LDL, can really dramatically reduce the amount of HDL that's present in your body. And as we know, a reduction of HDL can lead to things like heart disease or stroke or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is COPD. Because HDL is what needs to break down LDL to prevent blockages and plaque buildup and all these things in your arteries. And if you don't have any HDL in your body or very reduced levels of it, you're going to be at much higher risk for all of these different types of diseases. So being really stressed out can increase all of these behaviors that can further hurt you. And you may feel really emotionally up and down because of the hormonal imbalance and when we're imbalanced like that as I kind of was saying before we're not thinking like we normally do so we're going to have irrational thoughts we may overreact to certain things we may be a lot more irritable and forgetful and just all of these different behavioral changes you could be engaging in smoking or drinking or a drinking habit could worsen and these behaviors are all brought on just because of chronic stress So now at this point, I want to dive a little bit deeper than organs and go into a molecular level 
and talk about a process here that stress also can affect. And this is telomere shortening. Telomeres are the protein caps on the end of our chromosomes that protect the chromosomes during cell division. Think of them like the little aglet on the end of a shoelace that keeps the lace from fraying or unraveling. Telomeres naturally shorten when a cell divides because, you know, they're shortening on the ends of the chromosome. But with stress, glucocorticoids are secreted, and that process produces more oxygen byproduct, also known as free radicals, and these can inhibit telomerase, which is the enzyme that's responsible for maintenance of the length of the telomeres. And if you have shortened telomere caps, you'll eventually have no more telomere, and at that point, the cell will stop dividing. Now at this point, when the cell can no longer continue to divide, in the world of science, we like to say that the cell has reached its hayflick limit and cannot create any new cells anymore. And this is a process that naturally occurs in senescence, but stress can speed up these types of processes for us. And so there's a lot of ongoing research on things like this, but we're beginning to see a lot of correlation. So now I'm going to bring in the documentary and the content that I got from it. So I actually watched this documentary for my human population biology class earlier in the semester, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very interesting. It's called How to Live 101, and it talks specifically about very special communities around the globe that have high numbers of centenarians living in them. We looked at Sardinia, which is a region in Italy, and we looked at Okinawa, Japan. And one of the specific factors that was thought to be related to longevity in Okinawan populations was that they had a very specific diet. They were not eating until they were full, really. They were doing a sort of intermittent fasting and eating healthy foods. And they also were very hopeful in their overall outlook on life. They were just stress-free. I'll just leave it at that, and that, that's something to remember. And then when it came to longevity in Sardinian populations, they didn't really hold back on what they were eating. They just enjoyed their diet. They were very stress-free about it. A lot of them were still drinking. Uh, a lot of them were involved in some kind of religious activity, like something in their church. And that provided them with something to be very hopeful about, which is very important in your mindset. And then based on the contents of the film and the research that was taking place across these communities, the broad factors that we talked about were that there was religious involvement and a faith in a higher power, because that really brought people a lot of peace. And you don't even have to be religious to think about that, but it does really do something for people. The other thing was a good diet or a balanced diet or intermittent fasting. And then there was just healthy eating and stress-free activities. And some of the other activities that were mentioned were that they were part of a club or a class or they were doing something that really brought them a lot of mental and spiritual fulfillment. One of those was exercise, in, and that was in various forms as long as you're moving your body. And the overall benefits from something like joining a club or joining some kind of group in a community are that they provide a sense of community and belonging to people. You can develop skills and interests, and it just gives you something to do. It gives you something to have fun with. And if it's something that you love doing, like if it's a painting class or something, then you're engaging with like-minded people, you're doing something that you love, and you're gonna be very stress-free. And when it comes to being stress-free, 
That happened to be the one thing that linked all of these communities together with respect to factors that increased their longevity. And thinking about this overall was really fascinating to me because in this episode alone, you know, I was talking about all of the different ways that stress can really do damage on your body. And I don't mean in little short bursts of being stressed out because everybody goes through that, but if you really let stress become chronic, it does have a lot of negative side effects. Like think back to the cortisol stuff we were talking about and how that can cause a lot of dysregulation within the nervous system, the digestive system, the endocrine system, and so on. And there's a lot of biological strain that comes along with that because everything within your sympathetic nervous system, and that is the fight or flight branch of the autonomic nervous system, which is a branch of your peripheral nervous system. That's everything other than the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord. So this is the rest of the nerves in your body that are all communicating with each other. The sympathetic one is the one that controls the fight or flight. So everything within that branch of our nervous system is working to make sure that you can go into a fight and win or run or do whatever it takes to survive. So that would be things like pupil dilation so that you can see closer up. It's letting more light into your eyes and halting digestion because all of that energy has to be funneled into very specific areas that you need for survival. And that can really put a lot of wear and tear on your body. That's like driving a car really hard and putting a lot of miles on it. And then it starts to break down eventually relating to the body. This is actually a process that can speed up senescence. I think I mentioned that, but I can't remember if I did. But usually as we age, our bodies are senescing as well. But in these populations where we see really high numbers of centenarians, they are aging. They're, they're 100 years old and a little bit older, but they're not senescing, which is the chemical breakdown of all of the things in our body. And we wonder why that is. And it's really interesting that the underlying factor that both of those communities have in common is that they're not stressed out. Now, there's really no way to avoid senescence in general because it is a natural process, but chronic stress can speed that up. And so while I was sitting in class thinking about all these things and making these new connections about Sardinian populations and Okinawan populations and why so many people have a lot of chronic health issues that may be stemming from chronic stress and they're just going unchecked, is that there are numerous Bible verses where the Lord is telling us to not be stressed out and to cast all of our stressors and worries onto God so that they don't weigh us down. And I'll read a few of those off to you. I feel, I feel like they're very relevant in this context. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then Matthew 6, 34 says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And to connect these scriptures with the findings from that documentary, people who were religious did tend to have a little bit less stress than other people. And the Bible does encourage people to pray and submit to God to find that kind of peace because that's not worldly peace. That's not peace you can acquire on your own sometimes. And God doesn't want us to walk through life chronically stressed. 
So this is yet another crosstalk between the Bible and what God advises for us and science. The more upper level science classes I take, I'm seeing more and more correlation with things. And sometimes it requires you to read between the lines a little bit because a lot of the things in the Bible are symbolic or metaphorical. But if you can parse through that and figure out what the messages are, I've noticed that a lot of the times the science will back those things up. So this is just some food for thought. Um, I think it's very noteworthy. And with that, I want to conclude this episode of The Essentials. I think this is the longest one I've done, so thank you so much for sticking with it all the way until the end. I always appreciate the listen, and I hope that you learned something enjoyable that you can think about and maybe discuss with people in your circle, because I feel like it's very discussion-worthy. And don't forget to check out all the other great podcasters that are also here on the BMG Network.